So if you would all like to uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, as uh, we already mentioned, we're in the very last section of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 in your bulletin, our verses 16 through uh, 14, but I want to start with verse 5. So I'm going to start with 5, and then you'll pick it up in your bulletin, or you can go ahead and open your Bibles to um, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 5, where Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray again. Father. We praise you that your word has been preserved for us through the ages. And we also understand that we need your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. So help us this day. Hear your truth. Apply it to our lives and live it out. For the glory of your holy name. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, the theme of the message today is the challenge of humility. And I want to start out by saying that I am qualified to speak on this subject. Because a few weeks ago, I decided to go and buy a brand new pair of shoes. Now, in my defense, I bought those shoes to really work outside. But I liked them so well, I began using them with my jeans and going out. And I went to uh, one of my daughters, came to me and said, Dad, those are old man shoes. I'm an old man, right? And then uh, we went to a wedding this last Monday, <clears throat> and Neji bought me a new pair of shoes. And everybody, including Karen Trigg, looked at those shoes, and she said, Neji bought those for you, didn't she? Because they are stylish and up-to-date. 
So I am before you a humble old man wearing stylish shoes today. So just get that straight right from the beginning. But I have a test for you. Here's the test. Anybody know who said this? It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Anybody? Who said it? Okay, but it, this is a specific phrase. Came from, huh? Yogi Bear, no. He's an he's a athlete from of old, a famous athlete. Huh? Muhammad Ali. So it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. But you know, I've discovered in life that it's also hard to be humble when you're comfortable. It's hard to be humble when you're educated. It's hard to be humble when you are wealthy. And let's face it, folks, we, compared to the rest of the world, most of us are wealthy. It's hard to be humble when uh, everything is going well and all your needs are being met. So I think it's important what Peter writes to us here. And he writes this phrase that is based on the age-old principle that says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's in Proverbs 3.34. It's in James 4.6. And we read it here again in 1 Peter chapter 5. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4, and let's hear what James says about this. We're going to establish some biblical foundation for what we want to say today. But in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, James writes this, What causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? Now, re remember, James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to the church. He's writing to you and me. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I was just sharing uh, a mutual friend with Tammy this morning on her way to church who became an elder in the church and stormed out one Sunday because he did not agree with the church's position on whether to use masks or not. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself in opposition to God, an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit, but has, he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to the church. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. So I know we need to be encouraged, but sometimes encouragement comes in the form of admonishment. And that's what James is doing here. Because we get confused in this world in which we, we live. Now let's hear it from Jesus himself. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20, 23. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus, he's talking to the crowds and to his disciples, but he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. And so he says, the scribes and the Pharisees, on verse 2, sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They, all, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flactories abroad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called pastor, a rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do you hear that? We get into trouble. I don't know about you, but I'm going to confess before you right now. When I go to a party or a feast, I like to be recognized. I like to be acknowledged. And if there is a place of honor, I would like to be in that place of honor. That's who we are. That's the world we live in. And Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in this religiosity of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he goes on as we read on down three. And call no man your father on earth, verse 9. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Amen? Tough words, right? He's trying to encourage and build up the church. So, so how does this concept of humility fit into Peter's discussion of suffering? Well, I think the idea is this. Pride is the greatest deterrent to suffering. Pride is the greatest deterrent to our willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Because in democratic America, we say, I have my rights. I am in control. I don't want to do that. 
I'm in charge. So here's a premise statement. And, and you hear it, you apply it to your own life, and then you decide whether it's true for you or not. Okay, I can't do that. I'm just throwing it out at you, okay? And if you don't like it, you can throw it back at me. That's okay. But here's the statement. Chasing the American dream has made all of us to accept, to some extent, spoiled brats. Hello? Tough one, right? But that's America. We want it our way. We want to do what we want to do. If I don't like this store, I decide to shop at another. If I don't like this restaurant, I'll not go back there and I'll find another. If, if, if this marriage is not working like I wanted, I'll go out and marry someone else. That's the practice in our society today. If this church doesn't deliver what I want, I'll go to another. Why should I have to go through this sickness, this trauma, this war? Am I not a child of God? Isn't he going to take care of me? And I remember very vividly when my first wife was diagnosed with brain cancer, her sister, who was not a strong believer, said, why wouldn't God heal her? She left home. She gave everything to be a missionary's wife in a foreign country. Why would God not heal her? As though we had some kind of right. And I remember very distinctly a night in which I laid on my bed because I was struggling with the same idea. Why was God saying no? And so I laid down one night on the bed and I did something that's normally not a good idea but worked for me that night. I just opened the Bible. And it fell on Romans chapter 9. And I started reading. And who are you, O oh man, to speak back to God? If God decides to make out of the same lump of clay a vessel for noble, noble use and another for common use, that's his decision. And you know what? It's what I needed to hear. Because I closed the Bible, turned over, and went right to sleep. My friends, God is in control. Do you believe that? God knows what he is doing. Our role is to walk by faith. Let, let me just read something for you. I know that this is going to be, you're not supposed to read out of books in the sermon, but this is so powerful. I just got to read. It's from Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Church. And he's visiting the church in Peking, or Beijing, I'm sorry. And he's speaking to pastors who used to lead underground churches. Now that oppression was easing up in China, they had been given more freedom, so they began taking their churches above ground. They rented buildings and started running services the way we do in America. It was great for a while, but these pastors became so discouraged. I wish I could convey the frustration and desperation in their voices. They talked about the good old days, the good old days. 
when their people were risking their lives and radically sharing the gospel, making disciples. But now these pastors were lamenting the way their people attend services and expect the leaders to feed them and care for them, cater to them. They had seen the same transition in Korea and were terrified it would happen in their context as well. All anyone wanted was a Jesus and a church that served their needs and kept them comfortable. Sound like anything you've seen or experienced? We started as a movement, became a bunch of people sitting safely in service. My mind, Francis Chan writes, flashed back to five years prior when my daughter and I went to an underground gathering in China. Young people were praying so passionately, begging God to send them to the most dangerous places. They were actually hoping, hoping to die as martyrs. I'd never seen anything like it. I still can't get over the fearless passion for Jesus this church embodied as they shared stories of persecution. I sat in amazement and asked for more stories. After a while, they asked me why I was so intrigued. I told them the church in America was not, was not like anything, not, was nothing like this. I can't tell you how embarrassing it was to try to explain to them that people attend 90-minute services once a week in building, and that's what we call church. I told them how about about how people switch churches if they find better teaching, more exciting music, or more robust program for their kids. As I describe church life in America, listen to this, they began to laugh. Not just small chuckles. They were laughing hysterically. I felt like a stand-up comedian, but I was simply describing the American church as I've experienced it. They found it laughable that we could read the same scriptures they were reading and then create something so incongruent. How do you like that? Scathing, isn't it? It's shocking. But uh, friends, I, I'm here because I believe that God wants to stir up the church in America. He wants to stir us up as his people. I know that we are saved by faith through grace. But God's people need to get on fire for Jesus and begin truly living for him, whatever the cost may be. So Peter describes humility as a great attribute in dealing with suffering by encouraging all of us to clothe ourselves with humility. John Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, which is the Latin word for humility, defines humility this way. It is the noble choice. I think I have it up here. Here it is. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status. 
Deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Jesus talked about, or Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I will confess before you this morning, I don't do that very well a lot of the time. I think of myself more than I think of others. We are selfish because we have everything supposedly we need in most cases. And we become soft as the people of God. Now understand this. In verses 6 through 9, when we go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, he describes... Humility as a spiritual battle. The whole theme through this section, even though he talks about anxiety, he talks about spiritual warfare, he's talking about being humble so that God can use us. It's being humble so we can face suffering as humble servants of the Lord. So he describes this in verses 6 through 9 as a spiritual battle. By listening to the lies Satan puts in our minds when we are faced with difficult situations. And then we come up with things like, I shouldn't have to do that. I deserve better. They offer more of what I want. I can give you an example of the the church we worked with in Brazil. It was a church based on the premise of strengthening marriages. So they found a marriage class, very effective, married for life. It was written, developed here by a couple in, in, in Denver, Colorado, but it was translated in Portuguese, and they used it. And they started these groups on this marriage class. And one group started another and another and another. And here this church of a couple hundred people, about 80% of the people came into the church through these marriage classes. Many of them became followers of Jesus. They were baptized and became members of the church, and the church grew. But then about 10 years later, 12, I don't remember the exact timing, one of the ladies into the church, in the church went to a counselor because she was struggling in her marriage. And the counselor, who was not a Christian, said to her this, You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be happy. Go after happiness. And so then she told her other lady friends in the church about this counselor, and they went to this counselor, and she told them the same thing. And in a course of a year, there were about six or eight different divorces or separations in that very same church. So Peter says, recognize this. There is a devil out there, and he's just walking around in our midst like a roaring lion, and he's looking for someone who is vulnerable that he can chew up and spit out and walk away laughing. 
And every time a marriage fails, yes, even in the church, Satan walks away laughing. So as God's people, we need to develop that attitude. Divorce is not an option for us as the people of God. Now, I recognize there are situations of abuse that's an exception to that. Or adultery. But in most cases, that's not what's happening in the church. Friends, it's time for us to be humble in the presence of the Lord and before each other. So what does Peter say? What do we do, need to do in the midst of this? The first thing he says is resist these lies of the devil. Resist. You are a child of God. The spirit of the living God is in us. We have authority over the devil in our lives. Amen? Jesus said, when he told us to go out and make disciples, he said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And Jesus has given us that authority. So when Satan comes to tempt us, when Satan comes to throw lies into our heads, we need to be aggressive and say, Satan, get away from me. There are times when I'm by myself in the car and dumb thoughts come into my head, I verbally just say it out loud. Satan, leave me alone. Get out of here. You have no authority in my life. We are the people of God. We have the authority and we have the power to resist the devil. And that's what Peter says. Resist him. Then he says, stand firm in your faith. All right. There it is. Stand firm in your faith. It is faith in the power of Jesus that gives us victory over the enemy. We're talking about humility. We're talking about suffering. We're talking about being humble in the sight of the world and having victory through humility. And then thirdly, he says this, know that you are not alone. We just read about the church in China. There are Christians all over the world that are suffering. Our daughter Heidi received into her home yesterday a lady and her two sons from the Ukraine who fled because of the war. Our daughter Heidi was a missionary and her husband were missionaries there for two years. She developed these relationships with these women. And now she has taken on as her project to help these women and their families that she knows in the Ukraine. And one had got out and had gone to Spain and by herself, by herself, they did all the paperwork with, uh, with the government they got uh, uh, certified to take care of them. They, they got this family freed up to come into the U.S. And yesterday evening, 
they entered into her home where they can be taken care of. Her husband is still in the Ukraine. Not easy. It's a struggle. But God is working. And God is blessing. And God is taking care. So then, the last thing he says in this section, and then he tells us the blessings, verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will restore our heart for God and his kingdom. Suffering can add to our character whatever is lacking. He will confirm or establish to make us firm as granite in our faith. Do you know that faith without testing is weak? I don't know about you. I do not like testing. I do not like discipline. But the only way our faith grows strong is when it is tested. The only way that we can really see that we, the, the, the statement we make of our faith in Jesus Christ is real is when we are confronted with either temptation, suffering, discipline, or whatever's happening in our lives. So like those Chinese Christians, it's almost like we ought to say, Lord, send it to us. I can say that here this morning to you, but do I really want it? Do we really want to suffer for Jesus? But if we understand what it means, and how it sets us free. And all that God says here will happen in our lives as we go through it. Then we ought to develop this attitude. Yes, Lord. Bring it on. I shudder as I say that to you. But it seems like that, you know, didn't Jesus say, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross daily and follow me? The life of following Jesus is not that everything goes all right every time and we just sit comfortably in our homes and in our, our chairs and everything is good. That is not what Jesus has called us to, my friends. It's time for God's people to stand up in America and say, this is not right or that is right. This is not true. Here is real truth. And I'm telling you, when you start doing that, you will suffer. But praise God for the opportunity to suffer for Jesus. Strengthen you. He will establish you. Nip, uh, Nick Ripken has written a book. I recommend it to all of you. The Insanity of God. Anybody ever read The Insanity of God? Good challenging. But here's what he said. He was a missionary in Somalia during the war. He just could not reconcile all the atrocities he saw around him. And his question was, how could God be good 
when life was so dark. So he came back to the States and he went on a journey. He found the support he needed to go on a journey to visit Christians in the persecuted world and find out how they live their faith. It's an amazing research story. But when he was visiting churches in China, here was their statement about their pastors or leaders going into prison. Personal trust and respect for spiritual maturity amongst these Chinese Christians were often in direct, listen to this, in direct proportion to the amount of suffering that had been endured for the faith. And then he also said, one house church leader said, do you know what prison is for us? It is how we get our theological education. Think about that. And most of the stints in prison were for three years. My friend, if you are in prison for three years because of your faith, you work out your theology with God. But when we are so comfortable, never confronted, or we don't allow ourselves to be confronted. And we don't confront because we don't want anybody upset with us. I'm just challenging you this morning to think outside the box and think outside the traditional church that we have in America today. And what God wants to do in preparing his church for the return of Jesus. He said, prison in China is for us like seminary is for training church leaders in your country. Interesting. And Pastor Chang, who said those words, he said, had graduated with honors from three of these seminaries in China. I don't even know how to pray. Lord, send us all the prison so we can get our theology straight. We end up fighting over doctrine and separation over theologies. When in reality, we probably just need to learn how to live out 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Are you with me? The challenge for the church today is to live out humility. From his research, John Dixon also discovered two characteristics of successful people and leaders. Two characteristics. Here they are. Now, if you want to be a successful person and a successful leader, here's what he found. The two characteristics. Steely determination. And the second one was humility. Sound like opposites, don't they? Steely determination with humility. 
Let me tell you about our leader. Paul records it in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. This is Jesus, our leader, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our leader. Are you following him? Are we following him? Or are we following the world? Jesus' steely determination to do the will of God, his Father above all else. But the humility to die on a cruel cross so that you and I could have redemption of our sins. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And that purpose is to live for him humbly in a world that's going in the opposite direction. We are his children, redeemed by his blood. And like our leader. He wants us to have the steely determination to follow the will of God in our lives of all else and to be humble before God and before one another. As you prepare to meet around the Lord's table this morning, just take a few minutes. Talk to your Father in heaven. If there are sins you need to confess here this morning, do it now. We're going to take a few minutes for you to do that. And then we have people at the different stations. You can go there and have your time of communion, either as an individual, as a family, or as a group. And then there's one other thing that I want us to do this morning. And Peter ends this, this letter with these words. Greet one another with the kiss of love. No, we're not going to go around kissing each other. Okay? So I asked Daniel what would be the dynamic equivalent because it was a practice of those people to kiss each other on the cheek. As in Brazil... People greet each other and kiss each other on the, they don't really kiss, they kiss the air. I don't know where that's about, but anyway, on, they don't, some kiss on the cheek, just go side to side, yeah. Um, but I want us to do the dynamic, dynamic equivalent of the kiss of love here this morning. After you have communion, first you're going to have your time with God. As you feel free, get up and go to the stations. Have your time of communion with God and then go around and give as many people as you can 
a holy hug. We're going to call it the hug of love. In our society today, I don't think you'd be comfortable, and I'm not sure I would be either with kissing you guys. So, But hugging, I love to hug. So let's go around and give everybody the hug of love this morning. Take a few minutes. Talk to God what's on your heart right now. And then go commune with him.